This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers show number 46, recorded on July 9th, 2018. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and technologies that are shaping the future. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, you can always send us an email. Contact me, Jim, at TheAverageGuy.tv. You can track the guy down in the small window down below there. That's Christian. He's at Christian at TheAverageGuy.tv. You can find me on Twitter, at Jay Collison. Lots of good conversation going on there. Or Christian on Twitter, at Borg. You know, that those things on Star Trek, Borg Whisperer. Uh, you can follow him out there. TheAverageGuy.tv, powered by, Bo, uh, powered by not both, but powered, well, kind of, by Christian and Maple Grove Partners. Uh, web hosting is secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from people that you know and you trust. For more information and plans that start as little as 10 bucks. Are we still in the $10 range for plans, Christian? $10, man. $10 gets you some great service. MapleGrovePartners.com. Don't forget, if you haven't subscribed yet, you can do so on both uh, Apple Podcasts and Google you can do it on YouTube, both on the live page or on the recorded page. And you can even subscribe to us on Spreaker. All of them tell you when you go live. So that way, if you don't know, and sometimes we don't tell you, you'll get a notification. At least you can join us maybe halfway through the show. Love to have you subscribe. All right, Christian's coming in tonight. We're back. Christian, this is the third every fortnight. That's not really true. I don't think I used that word right. But every other week, I think maybe I did. Third, We've third done times the charm, yeah. Three times in a row. That's pretty exciting. Speaking of Fortnite, they're they're making a claim that llamas are appearing all over Europe in the uh, popular Fortnite season five release. So if you're a gamer and you're into the world of Fortnite, apparently there are llamas flooding both the game and like in live places in Europe. So wow. um, that's an exciting thing to look okay. forward to. Apparently, well, if you're if you're a Fortniter, if that's the way it goes. Uh, you should you should check it out. We got some couple topics for you tonight. If you haven't gone back and and listened to the last two, we kind of did on uh, Cyber Frontiers forty five. We kind of did an overview, kind of went back to the basics on AI, machine learning, and and we talked a little bit about deep learning. We're gonna deep, deep learning, deep thinking. We're gonna talk a little bit about that a little bit later on tonight. Christian, anything uh, from forty five that you want to just reiterate before we get started here? Yeah, I mean, the big takeaways from 45 that I think a lot of folks were asking us is like, hey, I see the terms machine learning and AI being used a lot, but it's kind of hard to pick apart the differences between the two terms. What is really the divider line between when we're talking about artificial intelligence versus machine learning? And the, the small takeaway, you can go back to 45 to listen to it, is that essentially machine learning is a subset of the larger field of artificial intelligence. So a lot of times you'll hear companies say that they use AI in their products, and all that really means is they're using some type of machine learning model, probably some type of deep learning model to do a very specific task very well. And so we kind of break down all the tenets of where those um, fields are defined and separated at. And tonight, part of what we'll talk about a little bit more along those lines is specifically um, some of the history of machine learning and some of the actual tenants that are developing um, in addition to some usual um, humor and updates in the world of cybersecurity um, and some fun sprinkled in between. So, hey, let's jump into that short history machine learning. I'll throw the link in the show notes to it. It's a Forbes article. Uh, Bernard Marr wrote that, and uh, he kind of a short history of machine learning. We gave that last week, Christian, but you dropped this link in the show notes because there's something you wanted to highlight in it. The second part of the title is every the, a short history of machine learning every manager should read. Yeah. Why? Why? Why is that important? 
Well, and so I wanted to capture this article. It was It's about two years old in Forbes, but specifically because I think it helps people calibrate their timeline of expectations of machine learning to the conversation we were having last week. So um, what we really didn't get an opportunity to talk about is like, where did it all begin, right? And so the article kind of gives some, you know, interesting flashpoints, I would say, along the timeline. I'm not really sure that it's comprehensive necessarily, um, but, you know, his very first uh, timeline on here is that in 1950, Alan Turing basically creates the Turing test, which almost every computer science student knows to mean that this was the kind of smell test for artificial intelligence having, quote unquote, real intelligence if the computer could fool a human that it was talking to a computer and not a human, computer, not a human. So, so essentially what that means is the human who's trying to figure this out, there's one room has the human, one room has the computer. Um, they're both talking or maybe providing textual input or so forth. And it's the person's responsibility to kind of probe these two black boxes to figure out which one is the computer and which one is the human. And the way you would do that is essentially by asking a series of questions that you believe uniquely a human would answer in a certain way that a computer might not be able to. Um, I believe the Turing test has stood the test of time um, for most of its life with the exception of um, back in 2014, there was a claim that uh, 2014, 2018, a couple claims that computer AI passed uh, the Turing test in the world's first simulation. Um, how, you know, legitimate those tests are is kind of hard to say. The one in 2014 was done in Ukraine by a 13-year-old who simulated, uh, or I'm sorry, the, the AI that they built simulated a 13-year-old boy. Um, and that test was essentially passed at the, um, I'm trying to remember what university it was, um, but but essentially that that first test was like the first time anyone really even remotely claimed that they had broken or passed the Turing test, which in and of itself has been somewhat of a gold standard for, you know, saying that we really haven't gotten AI to the point where it can get past this fundamental thing that started the whole thing. Um, then there was also uh, a report about three months ago in May that Google's duplex uh, beat the Turing test. And so, um, again, like these are like 21st century is the first place, especially in the last four years, where we're seeing small pictures and patterns of um, the Turing test maybe finally being beaten. Um, but it's a pretty classical argument. Um, you know, one of the first things you would study in any type of artificial intelligence course is about the history of the Alice chatbot and this concept that, you know, you would type a message to Alice chatbot and she would talk back with you, right? And like, these were the very early days of trying to prove and spoof the Turing test. And Alice chatbot, chatbot was really at the time in its first iteration, no more than an inflection-based system, right? It would use business rules and logic to basically see the inflection of the sentence, invert it, and push out an answer that you know, was enough to satisfy the English language, but you could clearly tell, like, this is a BS program talking to me. Um, and yet people back then were concerned that 
people would grow emotionally attached to Alice Chatbot. And in fact, some people who were lonely um, frequently began talking to Alice Chat- Chatbot, which again, literally an inflection-based rule system, nothing really complex about it. Um, apparently made some humans on the fringe excited about it too, which is kind of interesting. But like Alice Chatbot in the 1950s um, has come a long way in nearly 60 years to now pretty um, sophisticated home assistants. They're getting more and more sophisticated. And um, Google's duplex essentially is pretty realistic. Um, It's got a lot of the human inflection, pauses, breaks, and exclamations in its voice. Um, It doesn't have that computery or mechanized sound. So it does sound like a real person and they can do some kind of different accents with it. And you might've seen the commercial of it or at the Google IO keynote, but their demonstration of Google duplex was essentially um, an automated assistant that answers the telephone for you. So, or, or books out an appointment for you. So it calls the hair salon or the dentist or whatever. And the person at the dentist is completely convinced that it's a human they're talking to as they are doing their order and it, or I'm sorry, booking their appointment. And, you know, humorously, there was no sign or indication that the human on the under the line thought that it was talking to some kind of automated agent. You know, it's not like when you call a 1-800 number and it's like, hello, welcome to Verizon. In order to better assist you, please plus, nah, nah, nah. no, it's nothing like that. I mean, very fluid, very dynamic. Um, they have accents that fit the local area. So, you know, we're really getting to a point where that very fundamental test back in the 50s is starting to be overcome by the quality of the technology, which is really impressive. Yet it, it still hasn't gone. I mean, we we see these chatbot functionality, you know, pieces that seem to work really well, but yet we're not, when they get rolled out to the public, Microsoft made an attempt at this with a couple of their chatbots. One got super angry and really racist. Uh, in, in the in the experiment, they've replaced it with another. Uh, you know, I don't know. I know it's it's going to just take steps, right? We're going to have to just take kind of some incremental steps. You mentioned uh, the language, the understanding, or the language communication at which we are able to get these voices to work has gotten really better. And yeah. so maybe I, you know, I think it's really hard for humans to talk to a machine when they don't talk back in some kind of audible. You know, we've all heard that really bad machine speaking kind of language that doesn't work very well. I think they got to get that part right before humans will accept it. Don't you think so? Yeah. And I mean, but this is where I go back to, we talked about last week how, you know, machine learning and deep learning allows us to get really, really good in one particular area. And my argument and assertion that AI will advance by being able to combine a, a set of machines into a larger machine that then starts to fully human, right? So imagine combining something like Google's duplex, which has really good voice integration, sounds like a human, has natural inflection and response with the knowledge database of something like IBM Watson, which can spit back at you any answer that a top two Jeopardy contestant um, can spit back at you, right? So now you're combining a sophisticated knowledge retrieval system and insight system with a sophisticated language processor and interpreter. And now all of a sudden it's like, whoa, something that 
you know, one component of the two and in, in and of it's by itself, a human looking at human can probably distill it, but now put both of those components together and take away the human sense of vision and put them over the telephone. Now it starts to be like, Whoa, now we're way closer to consistently beating the Turing test than we ever have been before. There's been a course with, uh, you know, with the, the release of this book, deep, deep thinking, you know, the, this idea of deep work and, in when we think about, there's been kind of an emphasis that, you know, social and some of the more distracting things about our phone are really driving us away from having any deep thoughts, right, in this, and, or, or in general. And yet there is, I, I mean, I think as we get into this area of, of, um, of AI, someone, right, someone's going to have to do some deep thinking in this area uh, just to make sure, like, this isn't get out, getting out of hand in a hurry. I know there's been some issues with uh, just in that in that article, some issues early on about automated weapons, right? And that um, there, there's some real concerns as we kind of turn this technology. We, I, you know, we, we don't even need to put boots on the ground anymore. We can just send automated forces, and these aren't boots. These aren't literally boots on the ground, but we can fly drones and all those things into these areas. But is there, Christian, when you think about deep thinking about some of these really important issues in AI, uh, are there folks out there thinking about this? I mean, who, who's doing it? Yeah, I mean, there are quite a handful. Again, it's, um, you think about like the Elon Musks for in the world are the like classic contrarian example of people who believe that we are already on a collision course for um, artificial intelligence um putting us in extinction within 100 years. And so, you know, the real concept here is that if you start training machines to be really good at one thing, that's awesome. But now if you train them on the wrong target, all of a sudden um, you could have them being trained up on decisions that you don't want them to be making um, or might not have control over them making. You know, for take a classic example, a uh, very benign use case is I want to train uh, my self-driving car to drive really well, to not have an accident rate, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, let's say there is a some type of glitch or some type of situation and all of a sudden, you know, a grandmother and her, her granddaughter end up walking in the middle of a crosswalk with a self-driving car coming at it full speed. And the self-driving car realizes with the amount of time left, it can save one, but not both. And then the, and then the machine is deciding which one is worth saving and why, right? And all of a sudden we've gone from a very benign goal of don't kill anyone to uh, what is the lesser of two evils? And, and, you know, now the machine is making that choice. Now, you know, again, is there intent? No, but is there a huge data source of inputs in which we might start to lose control over those inputs? Potentially. And I think that's the classic concern of people like Elon Musk. Um, Henry Kissinger, uh, not a name I expected, uh, recently started kind of commenting on the same thing that like, whoa, we gotta be really careful. We haven't really explored the ramifications and the extent at which these machines are going to impact us in our daily life. Um, I think it's, again, as I stated in the last show, somewhat overly alarmist at this stage to be re reaching those conclusions. But at the same token, you have to kind of consider and weigh the fact that, you know, in 60 years, we have made tremendous progress in 
where the where the goalposts have been for AI. I mean, you look at even 10 years ago, AI looks completely different than it did back in 2006 when the you know term deep learning uh, deep learning was first really coined. And so if you are a futuristic facing individual, it might not be very hard for you to extrapolate that, you know, if the, if the learning rate and progress we made in AI was X factor in 10 years and we stay along that trajectory, yes, these machines are going to outsmart us all. And, and, and essentially the assumption that you're making is that the rate of progress will at least remain constant, if not increase in order to meet the demand that all of a sudden, um, we are losing control of our, our machines essentially. And I don't think there is enough data to prove that statement yet. Um, and it's not like we are as scientists, it's not like we were, we are required to disprove that statement in order for it to be true. Right. So as long as there's not data confirming it, um, you know, it's, you can't draw that type of conclusion um, purely on the facts that we have now. You can postulate all you want, but I don't think the data is there to show even a reasonable trend line that the trend will consistently perform in that direction. Um, one of the things I talked about earlier is that, you know, people are very, um, get very animated over the goals of what AI can do, right? So we talked about earlier a AI that has, IBM Watson for its brain. It has Google Duplex for its voice and speech. And now let's throw in, it has Boston Dynamics for its motor control and walking and operation. Now we're getting into this kind of humanoid personal assistant that I predict within the next 30, 40 years is going to be mainstream. I mean, um, I do feel very strongly that there will be um, cybernetic type devices, I think is the most appropriate word to use right now that will be in homes and in businesses and perform specific functions that traditionally humans do in a um, particular labor category. Um, but one of the things you have to keep in mind that that I see at least is that the, the targets, the learning target itself, um, just as if just as you can get a computer to laser focus on one thing doing it really well, um, if you ever had to self-defeat the computer, all you have to do is set it off on the wrong goal to basically get itself all confused and off track, right? Like the classic, classic thing we talk about in machine learning is bad data in, bad decisions out, right? So if you're feeding your learning algorithm bad data so that it can't learn, um, all of a sudden your algorithm, no matter how fancy it is, means nothing. Uh, and this is actually going to become a very interesting cybersecurity vector over the next 10 to 15 years is that, you know, as cybersecurity and the, the plumbing and the encryption and all the things that have been a real struggle bus for us over the last 10 years and data breaches and so forth, as that stuff kinds to subside and draw off, I think we're going to start to see a real increase in, um, cybersecurity interest will actually be around protecting um, artificial intelligence systems and learning algorithms, especially as these are the algorithms that are going to start making increasingly more important business decisions. And the ability to coerce those business decisions is very much kind of like a red hat, blue, uh, red, red flag, green flag kind of environment. So 
Um, that is, I think, an increasing attack surface that we'll see as these technologies get into the more far field maturity. But, you know, if I want to worry about how to stop the AI apocalypse, my first thing is going to be how long is it going to take before systems realize they're being tampered with? Um, and I don't see any notion that there are any systems that are self-aware of tampering. Obviously, we have a ton of things in computer science that do integrity checks, validations, data quality. And I'm not saying that that couldn't be developed or coded in, um, but machines don't necessarily know when valid input is being put there to influence it a different direction and suggest something that it might ordinarily um, not get in a regular sample of data. Um, and that's not something that's like an easy integrity check, so to say. Christian, why do you think the drive to recreate ourselves, except in a machine version, you know, there, there's a lot of there's a lot better uses of technology, especially when we think about combining, um, you know, silicon with with our own biology to kind of enhance ourselves. And yet there's still this drive to create the robot, right? The perfect robot that's smarter than us. Why, why do you think that is? I, I would think that would, from a survival standpoint, that would go against everything we have grown to know about evolution and that we to create something stronger, more powerful, smarter, faster would, would not be survival of the fittest. Yeah. I mean, yes and no. You have to remember that in science fiction, we have idolized this concept for, you know, a very long time, decades, certainly decades, like since the Gene Roddenberry days. Um, but, but even going back further, um, to early literature, um, Number one, humans are very self-serving, so we obviously think that we're the best thing since sliced bread. We are the ultimate alpha. Therefore, we want to basically have stuff in our own like an image. Um, but, but moreover than that, I think uh, humans are obsessed with the idea, and it, and it bothers them subconsciously, it bothers us subconsciously, but doesn't necessarily always bubble to the surface this concept that we fully can't grasp our own consciousness and our own ability to reason. So I don't think the initial drive is necessarily the fact that we believe the best systems are to replicate human systems. I do think that we have constantly tried to use AI as a way of better understanding our own thinking and behaviors. And that might be a very fundamentally flawed approach. We, we have a lot of data that suggests over the last 60 years of trying, um, we've gotten nowhere close to any of those answers. However, um, you have to counter that with the fact that the technology has been catching up quite a bit as we take on that endeavor. But I certainly don't think it is purely driven by um, robots with human looks, capabilities, and strength will be the most effective form factor of artificial intelligence. In fact, I think um, there's a lot of uh, less, uh, there are a lot of less vulnerable uh, physical form factors, for example, than humans, you know, um, if my brain is in up here and all my neural net cords are right here, um, if I'm a computer, I might want to distribute where my brain is into like some redundancy systems so that one chop to the neck doesn't end Sally the robot, you know, but, um, those are the kinds of things that I think we, it's very easy to imagine and fantasize about in science fiction 
uh, that will have direct analog replacements for organs and so forth. But I think the reality is it'll, um, its final form will look nothing like that. And that certainly doesn't mean people aren't going to try because they will continue to. It just doesn't necessarily stipulate that there's any particular reason why that's a most effective strategy for really futuristic, long potential AI. I think my next book is going to be the story about how some really inferior machines concocted this biological system to create humans who eventually wiped it out. It, it was a better creation, sure. wiped out the machines and, uh, and dominated the planet. You know, how, how funny would that be? Uh, well, we know it's pretty much not true, but how funny would that be that we're worried about yeah, that? How about that? And yet, uh, uh, you know, we we could be that well and we are the dominant biological system on the planet that is really overrunning all other systems at this point and um and, and so there's some interesting things to think there i do i do appreciate you know when we think about the design if we thought about you know the the design of the human body has made it what's so dominating on the planet right now it's a pretty good design but just the fact that you mentioned that our critical systems are all in the are basically all in the same place. And, uh, and if we could distribute maybe our, you know, our respiratory system, our, uh, circulatory system, our sure. thinking, if that could be replicated around our body, that might make more sense. Um, yeah, then you get into the fundamental factors of like, is a biped the most, you know, a useful form factor, right? Um, and it, again, it could be for different use cases, right? Where yeah. you want where you want people to be comfortable around machines, they might be most comfortable interfacing with their own yeah. form factor, right? Well, we've seen the movie Interstellar, they uh, kind of a different take on, uh, you know, on some AI and, and robots, basically. They're just a flat panel, but they can be reconfigured into all kinds of different configurations based on the need, whether that be kind of a spoke or whether that kind of be in a walking scenario or being able to carry or being able mm. to stretch out or d uh, do that kind of a different take that actually be a good, that kind of machine would be a good one to distribute the thinking. Yeah. You know, the components would be redundant around the system. So it kind of a different way of, of, um, of thinking about it. It, 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 it's early times, right. And, and we continue to have, I know, we sometimes create these systems for ourselves to be helpful to us, right? The automated assistant who can order parts for us or remind me to get milk next time. At yeah. the right. Next time I'm, I'm at the store, you know, back to your automobile, uh, I, the, you know, example that you did a few minutes ago about having to make a decision. I heard a, a recent argument, you know, where the machine has to save one and let the other die. The argument to, to the scientists who are thinking about that are saying those systems are so smart, they would never get to that point. They would be able to predict so far ahead right. that they would not, it would never get to a point where they would have to make that decision. Any, any, any thoughts uh, on that? Uh, certainly it's possible. I think, again, the, um, the caveat to that I state is that if someone is trying to coerce the machine's understanding of the inputs that it's getting, um, it could end up being a situation where the machine doesn't realize it's too late because it's been getting consistently a bad data feed for a long enough time that by the time it realizes it's going on, it's too close to the decision that it has to make, right? And I think that's where people are only looking at it from a very purified model of the AI and not looking at the potential attack vectors and other situations that are going to creep up 
And I think that's going to be underestimated for quite a while. I think people are going to believe that the AIs are going to be able to protect themselves from a lot of coercion. And I don't know if that's the case. Well, we certainly don't have a great track record at the moment when we think of the last 25 years and systems that are, you know, are hack proof, are hack resistant we ourselves have not created that, right? I mean, do we have a, do you, can you point to a system today that is robust enough that you would want to say you had this AI that you wanted to protect and you needed to put a secure layer around it? Do we have systems in your opinion that we could put around it that, that might keep it fairly secure? Yeah, I mean, I think the key here is if you control your data inputs to the AI, then you increase the probability that the, the data in can't become polluted. So for example, um, when a self-driving car is driving, there's a huge field of view and objects I could try and put in that field of view to coerce the data that it's seeing, or maybe get it to make decisions that it otherwise wouldn't make. Um, with something like a, a Watson learning machine, where maybe it has a offline disconnected brain of knowledge, uh, a learning knowledge where it can still take inputs and outputs, but the actual core data training set where it started learning all of its decisions is kind of closed and isolated. That might help keeping the AI from totally taking on a different learning model over time than from what it started, because it's going to obviously it's going to evolve and learn from its initial training, but it always has that baseline to kind of fall back on when the decision boundary is too close where it's like, not really sure what I'm doing here. It could fall either way. If AIs that are more likely to rely on their initial programming might be more resilient in the long term to those types of attacks. Think about the situation of a human who is born into a situation where it is negatively programmed, so to speak, abuse, a brainwashing, you know, some of those kinds of things. And it's taught to think something different, different enough that it will strap explosives to itself and, and, you know, and, and murder people uh, at random. Do you think, do machine learning systems, are they going to face similar, you know, could we change their programming with different today that's done through torture or that's done through pain. Is that eliminated? Do you think because it's a machine that's experiencing that or can these bad inputs just be done in another form? Restate your question. I'm trying to digest. Yeah. This. So just think of, so hum, human systems, us, right? right. We can be reprogrammed. We're, you know, for the most part, we can be reprogrammed through negative systems. Mm -hmm. We can be hacked, so to mm -hmm. speak. So through torture, through brainwashing, through sleep deprivation, through, because we have these biological systems right. that can, that can cause us to break down. When, when we think about getting into these AI systems and they're learning, right? They're learning from their environment. Are there are there going to be just other hacks that can be that they can face? You talked about the inputs. Is that hack some way of torturing the machine to get it to think differently? Yeah, I think the two things are um, one, I think humans are thinking about if AI ever got to this point, you would want to design AI that doesn't have this goal of uh, self-preservation. Um, humans' biggest goal in life, regardless of what they tell you, is self-preservation. So um, there is really nothing that overrides the innate desire for self-preservation. And so 
um, trying to make AI that doesn't necessarily have the same adamant desire for self-preservation probably goes a long way to keeping it from being corruptible to uh, turn against us. Uh, second thing to keep in mind is that um, computers will obviously have those same pressure points as AI. And the, the question here is that it's a pressure point for us because of that desire for self-preservation. And so you might have to restate it as not being a pressure point for the AI, but being an innate, innate flaw, weakness, or vulnerability that causes the system to start acting in a unpredictable way, but doesn't necessarily change the system's motive for what it's desiring to do, right? It's not trying to fall back on this self-preservation model, um, which is interesting because if you think about how we develop computer systems, we pride ourselves as software engineers in trying to develop resilient, secure um, systems that will bounce back in the eyes of failure and other, and other types of um, adversity. And so the question becomes, when humans are developing a system and humans have an innate desire for um, self-preservation, how much can humans really prevent themselves from designing self-preservation into the stuff they're working on? Mm -hmm. um, and I think we'll find it's harder than we make it out to be. Well, we had a discussion, I think it was you and I, and we said, I said something like, you know, the, we don't care if machines die it, it, in, the, in their service to us unless we had millions of dollars invested in them. I mean, think about it. Say if you had a, you, you built a robot from, from the very beginning and you spent 18 years training it to be smart and you, you poured time and effort and money and sleepless nights staying up all night to reprogram it and all these things that you would do for 18 years and then you send it off to computer college and if somebody wants to smash it, don't you think like all of a sudden you're, you want that thing to have a little bit of self-preservation so it can't just be, you know, run over by a truck or I, this is, this is the thing. I don't know if we get good AI without this ability to, to, to preserve itself or to think for itself or to, cause I think the essence of what makes us such good thinkers is our ability to pr protect ourselves and no good from bad and light from dark. And like, I shouldn't eat that because it'll make me sick because, and I don't want to be sick because that's painful. That's super, like, that's, I think the scary parts of AI, because as soon as you start training it to do those kinds of things, then it does go into self-preservation mode, right? I, I, I'm wondering if you get one without the other, I guess is what I'm, is what I'm thinking. You know? Yeah, no, I think I think you're spot on, and um, it'll really come down to I think the pace at which the technology can enable those types of uh, simulations of self-preservation against how do we separate self-preservation of an artificial intelligence from um, resilience and engineering, right? Just like the engineering principle of building systems that don't fail, right? Because you don't want a system that fails for the sake of failing, right? But you don't want a system that necessarily, if you sent a kill switch, it would be like, ooh, don't touch me. I want to live, right? I think that's the real difference, right? When we talk about resilient systems, we're talking about designing systems that get back up on their feet and keep working if they encounter failures, that's very different from a system that, you know, um, reprograms itself to avoid your kill switch, right? Yeah.
Yeah. Um, and yeah. if a, if a computer has that self-preservation in it, in any kind of form, um, that could happen down the road. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's, it's a, that's where I think it gets super sticky is in this area of self-preservation. And, and I, we got to think through that because I, I just don't think a machine that doesn't have a, that doesn't have the right motivation to stay alive makes the same kind of decisions that one that we want truly to have at least some kind of conscious thoughts, right? So Randy asked from the chat room, Christian thoughts on the speed race between the dark side of technology, people with ill intentions versus the white hat players and what potential temptations of white hat players to engage in poor behavior due to the potential of the gains, you know? So did that, that make sense? Yeah, no, I think um, actually going back to the beginning of the conversation about the Turing test uh, for white hat hackers, it might become very interesting to um, create moral arguments for why machines should be allowed to manipulate and or deceive humans into doing certain things, right? Um, I think that is something that is going to be pretty shocking when there are a lot of social settings in which you can't make a solid distinguishment over is the person I'm talking to on the phone, a person or a robot. Um, what is the, you know, we have enough problems with social engineering and spear phishing as it is on phones when it's humans on the other end, what happens when you train up an AI, uh, Google duplex to be really good at doing it. And I think, that will create some interesting ethical boundary conditions because what's illegal about an AI system uh, making that call? Are you doing the illegal activity or is the AI doing the illegal activity? So we very quickly get into this nuanced conversation about do laws and countries apply to the entity that created the artificial entity or to the artificial entity? You know, it just it starts to get down this really stupid line of reasoning where, you know, any average person is going to look at it and say, that's nonsense. Of course, you know, it's illegal for so-and-so to, you know, set up a scam system automated or not. But as these systems start to look more and more like the real deal or can act from themselves, what's to keep the human from saying, oh, I didn't think the AI would do that, you know? oh, I didn't train it to do that. That's the AI's fault. I didn't buy that, right? And, and so it gets to this place where one of the fundamental technology or fundamental statements in, in cybersecurity is this notion of non-repudiation saying, um, without any doubt, I can say that it wasn't me that did it basically, um, or it was me that did it. And when you start to lose the feature of non-repudiation as it pertains to the decisions that artificial intelligence is making, now all of a sudden there's this really interesting legal argument around how can you validate a witness's testimony as to whether the artificial intelligence did something that it was told to do by its owner versus did on its own. Um, that, if we ever get to that point in our lifetime, will be uh, truly bizarre and well, very uncomfortable. It's kind of the advanced Turing test, right? In a lot of ways, yeah. can is is the AI responsible, right? I mean, we for biologicals, we have set an age in most cultures, eighteen or twenty-one, depending upon your culture or you're at. Is this age of responsibility, right? We have this fairly clear line where we take the 
accountability off of the parents, in this case, the developers, and we move it on to that individual. Does AI, do you see a day when we have a some kind of space when AI goes to a spot and it now is responsible for its own actions? Potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I think outer space is the best <laughs> space to have that conversation. Um, I get this feeling that we are going to expend a bunch of artificial intelligence in space because of the difficult um, biological situation created for humans up there. Um, so I suspect that is where we will start to test a lot of these interesting notions of what happens when the robots have left the the forces of gravity that keep us, keep them in our control. Um, so that's certainly one domain. Um, I think any, you're already seeing the huge backlash to super simple AI being used in military applications. We've seen what um, has happened in the press with the Google Maven project, right? And so, you know, if there's already that much pushback at this level, I can only imagine what the type of dilemmas are going to occur when, and this is definitely in our lifetime, in 20 to 30 years when AI is an innate part of the battlefield, how the heck will we coalesce around making some of those decisions? Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest things that I'm seeing is that you look at the really, I call basic issues, but for the sake of this argument, let's say the really basic issues of data and privacy and just understanding the technical concepts around what allows for or inhibits good privacy and data hygiene practices. And it's like, if you're, if 95% of the people in Congress can't grasp the technology that enables those things to take place when we're talking about like Facebook, which is like, yeah, there's a lot of source code, but at the end of the day, like most people under 40 years old can give you a pretty detailed description of what is Facebook? Why do you like it? Why do you hate it? Right. But when your average, um, governing body in the world can't, um, it makes for a really scary equivalent when we get to that place where now they're caught up on those issues, but are so brutally behind on issues in artificial intelligence. And um, I think making good decisions will in part rely on having a good understanding of how the technology works, right? Like it's, it's somewhat, a limited view to say that we should only base decisions based on the outcome of the event um, and not necessarily understanding the inputs that go into generating that outcome. And I think we're going to find ourselves in a place where not a lot of people understand the inputs. In Mm. fact, an increasingly small percentage of the population will continue to understand the inputs as these systems get more complicated. And then you will have a very large um, dog that's snoring. Duke. (laughs) Duke, Duke, <laughs> man, he must have, he must have been having a super good dream there. And now, is this a real dog, Christian, or is this your robot dog? No, it's a it's a robot dog um, <laughs> for sure. Um, That's super funny. Well, Christian, a good place to transition, but I, I do want to say, in this, like, I think we have a lot more decisions to make when we think about AI and the, the ramifications of it. I think some people think we're going to get to a day and it's just going to turn on. Like we're going to have all this work and it's just going to be there. And I really do think we have a whole bunch of decisions to make 
to between there and between today and then. This is not a, you know, one day we're going to wake up and AI is going to be there and it's going to be a robot that's going to, you know, kill everybody. Right. Um, I, I, we've got a lot of, th- we got a lot of road ahead. Don't you think? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think even a lot of the stuff that we've talked about this evening is like very contingent upon how fast the technology timeline moves, right? Like a lot of those scenarios we're talking about depends on a lot of other things going off without a hitch, right? And if history tells you anything about technology going off without a hitch, all you have to look at is James Webb Space Telescope, which now will require full reauthorization from Congress because of some severe technical issues. And so that's a pretty hard technical feat in engineering. Um, imagine the types of setbacks we will have in developing this technology yeah. as well. Yeah. It's we've got a lot ahead of us. Could could we see you know in, in the in the movies Hollywood has some rogue um, tech guru out of the Silicon Valley, whether that's an Elon Musk or a, a Zuckerberg creating an AI robot behind the scenes? I think I've seen that example a couple times. Do you think someone in a position who has, you know, uh, billions of dollars, not mentioning anyone uh, that, you know, anyone else in that space who had billions of dollars could could self-fund a project that could be behind the scenes and do some things without necessarily all the government regulations? Do you, th- you think that's even possible? No, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, again, it's a, it's a huge hypothetical, though. But yeah. Again, there's not enough um, parameters of regulation to suggest that it's not feasible to do it. Well, let's um, let's shift gears a little bit as we think about the remainder of our time and talk a little bit about some security things that have come out. This is more <laughs> we've we've spent 45 minutes kind of in these wait while we make a massive pivot out of the rat hole of artificial intelligence and machine. I think it's learning. good. I think it's good. Uh, but when we think about email and we think about you know we were promised years ago, Microsoft made this promise, Google made this promise, Yahoo made this promise. Hey, we're going to use our email and we promise only a machine will ever look at it because we're going to serve you ads based on some of the content. That, that's that what keeps your email free, right? Today or, or recently, Google has announced that, oh, by the way, sometimes third-party app developers can read your email too. Is that like, is that a major breach there? it's not a breach. It's this common classic thing. I tell everyone about, you know, all those terms of service you scroll through, like here's one of the impacts that someone just finally managed to find and make a stink about, which is that it was technically designed this way. Like there was no technical breach because this is what we wanted as Google. Right. Um, They literally wrote the terms of service in such a way that if the developer has the permission to read the Google message through their app service, that therefore you can also derive, there is nothing keeping that developer from also reading the message. And I mean, to be fully fair, if there's ever a case where you grant an application access to read your messages like that, of course a software developer is going to be able to figure out how to you know, slow tap and drip that thing to get back the original data that they want. So is it a breach in my opinion? Absolutely not. I'm super humored that Congress is, you know, experiencing outrage porn over this article because it is not the equivalent of what's going on with Facebook, especially in the respects that, um, yeah, it's really unfortunate that that there's no education around these issues, which is why people are getting outraged over it. But the more important takeaway here is that when you grant 
a third-party provider who writes to use your stuff, be really sure you understand what you are granting them permission to do. And so Google and Microsoft say machines will only read your email, but what is it that's binding the third-party developer who you've handed that permission over to, to following the same rule book? And the answer, as we're finding out, is nothing. Um, and so, again, um, you use devices and services, and they're worth the price you paid for them, which in this case is $0 and 0 cents. So it is the natural evolution of technologies built off of advertising platforms that they can be misused and abused when you don't realize what you're accepting and signing yourself up for. Um, so is it a technical data breach or any kind of large scale thing? As a technologist, I think it's actually no, because the bigger the bigger takeaway here is we have no real understanding as a society. We continue to make the mistake over um, what we're signing ourselves up for, what the terms of service mean, what the privacy policies mean. And interestingly, um, Europe is just running circles around us with this. I mean, GDPR is a classic example where Europe is very wake up uh, and attuned to these issues and we're still not so much. So I would love to see what the legal analysis is for how um, third-party apps that you've consented to give your data for in the case of Gmail here, how GDPR regulation applies to those third-party developers reciprocally. Uh, that would be fascinating, right? Can you use GDPR to go after the people who are um, using these types of practices with Gmail? And I think the answer you will find is absolutely you can. Here's a whole legal framework for you to mount your case and start a class action. Um, so somewhat bizarre when you think about that, but that's we're very much moving into, this is not a technical issue. This is a legal and ethical issue. Let's just say, for example, going back to our previous conversation, these, are, these aren't third-party app developers, but it is the machines. It's just some really smart machines that are beginning to build profiles. I mean, they're kind of doing this already in the sense that they're reading my email, they're building a, a profile for me. They kind of knew who I am and what I do, where I go. And I know they're saying they're only doing that for advertising purposes. But, but what happens when that machine becomes a little smarter with some artificial intelligence and is able to make some decisions that may call the police based on yeah. right what it sees? Or it, and it'll call the police with Google Duplex with a, uh, you know, an, an Aussie accent. Hello. You have a little yeah, cat who's um, suffocating in the car because you forgot to put the windows down. Right. So it could right. be pretty interesting. Um, no, right on. It's that, it's that time of year. You know, you mentioned that example. It's that time of year when that happens. People leave pets or mistakenly leave children in their cars. And not as much here in the United States, but in the UK, like every square inch of the UK has a camera yeah. and could be watched and could be monitored. Again, those things that are designed for for to be helpful, which could make a phone call to say, "Hey, I'm sensing. I, I we just put a new. I just put a new D link, uh, um, you know, security cam out the window facing my patio, my front door, right where boxes get delivered, and the whole intent is for it to kind of watch as people, you know, as they bring boxes or whatever. But Christian, it picks up a ton, a ton of movement, right?" Yeah. going on and i'm thinking okay now multiply that you know it's and again we there's a whole tv show around this right per, people of person of interest 
I think is yes. what it was. Yeah, that was a five season run of kind of exploring yeah. that whole thing with but, a really spooky AI on top of the the cameras as its as its sensory input. No, right, right, doing this thing. But think of that then in terms of it plowing through my personal email in some of the decisions that could be made to ask kind of based on what it's seeing in my email. And I don't send anything to Gmail, but I think that uh, that could be interesting as well. You know, you left a note in here in the show notes as well. Apple's releasing it with 11.4.1. That's 15th kind of update uh, for iOS 11, uh, introducing a bunch of new security features. Um, they, of course, are working towards, you know, iOS uh, version 12. Any any thoughts on that? Uh, on those, I'm I'm an I'm you know I'm an iPhone user. I'm on 11. Do anything I need to do? Should I just keep keep going or what? Yeah, I think it's um, the iOS 12 is a pretty remarkable update in terms of both just features and security that they're getting out of it. Um, the long-awaited group uh, FaceTime group chats is coming out with iOS 12, and I think that'll be a big deal. But um, some really interesting security things to note, both in the point release of iOS 11 that's coming out today or tomorrow, um, as well as iOS 12. One of the more notable ones being the USB debugging port and the data connection USB port by default now turns off after an hour of having the screen locked as opposed to a week. So this tightens the device by a huge order of magnitude where it switches the USB port to power only after an hour, which makes it uh, much more um, unlikely that someone's going to come along in your device and try and gain access to the USB port through some type of brute force mechanism. So um, Apple is definitely doubling down when it talks to continuing to secure the device end-to-end encryption on everything. Um, you know, Apple has designed their platform unlike Gmail, so they can't even read your text messages if they want to um, on the device. So it's really getting to a place where they're they're moving full on in the security and privacy for their customers. And I think the platform is definitely increased in its brand value um, in the sense that uh, more people might be picking iPhone now for some of the security protections that come with the device over Android. You Android or iPhone? Uh, I'm on iPhone 8 Plus. I made the switch off Android a little over a year ago. Um, I found a year later of having the iPhone, it's been super dependable. Um, the eight plus the battery life, I can go two full days before having to recharge. Um, and a year later, the battery still holds up that well. Um, I think Android excels at customization better than iPhone. I think Android gives you a lot more flexibility with the user interface and how you want things laid out. But I think iPhone provides a much more consistent and stable experience, um, as, as kind of a personal, um, antidote, but I think Android community might argue back on some of those points pretty hard. So um, don't take them as truth and religion. But um, I have found that the iPhone has been a very dependable platform, which is something that is becoming increasingly um, a larger factor for me with my phones. Like I want something that isn't going to be burn and churn every year and a half to go find a new phone. And I think with the 8 Plus, I could easily get three, four years out of this as opposed to one or two years. Yeah, I did. My, my iPhone 7 was three and a half uh, years, something like that um, on there. I probably could have easily, uh, you know, squeaked out another six months on it. I only traded in because it was getting to that time where it was, you know, I think Sprint offered 
because those phones get too old to turn in for value, right? So you need to get them turned in. Otherwise, they lose massive amounts of, 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 of value. I, too, am on the 8 Plus and have, uh, I really like it. I, um, Sarah has picked up the, the Pixel 2. Uh, my boys are on the Pixel 2. They really like it. She really likes it. Mm-hmm. I doubt I'm ever going to get her on an iPhone. I just, you know, I so much so. I was thinking, you know, at one point I'm like, oh, maybe I'll go Google, you know, next time around. And the plans are certainly, you know, with 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 Google Fi, you're 30 bucks. And if you don't use it, they give it, they credit it back to you. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing the pricing and some of the plans they have on on Google Fi. And so it's hard to, you know, if to go with a Pixel and get on the Fi network, go with an iPhone, be super secure. I'm not saying Google phones aren't secure, but, um, you know, by the way, if you're listening to this and you don't have a password on your phone, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a problem. That's yeah. one of the other big things is the two-factor that they're amping up on the iPhone 12. So um, not only passwords, but now I think two-factor is going to have another uh, iteration of improvements coming out. Um, yeah, well, I think they've learned a lot with 10 and, or yeah. X or whatever they call it. And um, they are going to implement those. So Kyle Wilcox gave me some great advice. Anytime you get that big of a change on a form factor, wait uh, a version because the next version that comes out will be pretty robust. I think we're going to see the next version of iPhones and this new iOS 12 coming out together. I think it's going to fix a lot of the problems that they had with that. Uh, it didn't, it, it didn't sell well. That 10 did not do very well. And uh, I mean, they sold a few, but, but not as I think what they were hoping for. Um, they'll get, they'll probably get that right and, um, and have that available um, for folks this next go around. So be interesting to see. I'm going to try and stretch this, this eight plus out for a while, Christian. I'm not going to, I'm not lying to you. I think it's uh it's one of those things I want to keep around for a while. It just works. Great phone, great size. If I can keep it working and not like you said, the battery hasn't given up one second of, uh, of time. In fact, it's amazing. I get home most nights, 60, uh, 55, 60%, you know, when I get home and, or I've had it sit around all day and come, you know, literally on a Saturday, I don't do anything with it. I come back in the evening and it's like 85% and you're like, dang, okay, this will work. So, uh, pretty great. Like you said, yeah. like you said, there are folks who I'm sure have had equal experiences on the Android side. If you want to tell us how great that experience has been, Christian at the average guy.tv, you can sure. send them, you can send them to me too, Jim at the average guy.tv. We'll, uh, we'll take, um, that as well. Christian, anything else we kind of covered? We actually made it through our material. Anything else you want to throw in there before we wrap it up? I think that's a wrap. All right. Super good. Uh, good long conversation. I, I'll be honest. I'm digging the AI conversations, even yeah. though I don't know Jack about it. Let's just hey, be honest. Well, it's fun stuff. And we've kind of lined up the outline such that when I start getting in a little more technical uh, chompy stuff in some episodes from now, I think hopefully folks will be able to go back and listen to the framework podcast for, um, for digesting what we're, what we'll eventually start talking about. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, sounds good. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. We are on every two weeks now or so. Uh, so if you're listening to this now, uh, most likely we need to schedule it. But it's, it's looking like July 23rd is the next uh, update. If you'd like to join us on a Monday night and uh, join us live, that'd be great. Randy, who joined us live tonight, says, I enjoy the AI talk. So appreciate that. And he says he knows 
much less than Jim. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's, I know one Randy knows maybe uh, 0.75 and Christian is probably a 1 billion at that point. So we uh, appreciate you guys putting up with that and uh, putting up with me as we get through this, but uh, we'll continue to enjoy it. And there'll be much more of this conversation over the coming weeks. We'll remind you if you haven't done it yet, subscribe, rate, review on Apple podcast. If you haven't tried out the new Google podcast. It's still not great on Google. They're going to get better, but you can check that out over there on your Android phone. Give it a try. See, let me know how well it works. If you're listening on uh, YouTube, you can click the notification, uh, subscribe and notification bell. That way you get notified whenever we're going live on YouTube on the live channel or whenever we are posting to the recorded channel, you can get those notifications as well. And then Spreaker does a really nice. Uh, if you sign up for the service over there, maybe you don't want to mess with those. You're not interested in messing with YouTube. Head over to Spreaker, Spreaker, S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R, Spreaker.com. You just create an account. Then find home, uh, find Cyber Frontiers. You can find Home Gadget Geeks, too, if you want to. And just subscribe to those, and it'll tell you whenever we go live. That way you never miss a lifetime. If you have questions, comments, contributions, anything you want to throw at us or throw at Christian, send it to me, Jim at TheAverageGuy.tv. Christian is super easy. He's just Christian at the average guy TV. Or you can ping us over on Twitter at Jay Collison or at Borg Whisperer. If you enjoyed it and we really would appreciate it, just share it, right? Drop it out to a few friends. This may be, we're trying to kind of create that average guy uh, cybersecurity AI show that's, uh, that uh, folks will enjoy. So if, if you haven't shared this out with your community, do it. We appreciate you doing that. We are live every other Monday night, and I think we're shooting for 7 p.m. Central, 8 Eastern. That's an hour earlier than Home Gadget Geeks, but that works for Christian. We got to get him. He's got a bedtime, so we got to get him in bed kind of early so he can be up for work the next day. I'm just kidding. Not That's really right, true. Got to get my cat napping. I know. You got to get that. Uh, you got to have time to... You still got five hours of code to write here. That's after right. It's time to burn and churn some AI uh, gadgets <laughs> if we're going to get to that, that fanciful place in 2050. Uh, maybe you could write an AI version of the uh, the home server lights out. Was that you? No. Yeah. Was, that, was lights out you? No. What well, did you do? No, I did the uh, magic wake on land for Windows Home Server. That yeah. classic piece of software that um, you can now get as freeware. We uh, we took the commercial licensing off it for those diehard fans who still run the original version one of uh, Windows Home Server. So yeah, Randy remind copy today. <laughs> uh, Randy reminds me. I thought this was in the show notes that you should, of course, if you uh, if you need. If you need hosting, if you need web or media hosting, it's especially good for podcasters. Don't forget this program, as well as the TV powered by Maple Grove Partners, gets secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from people that you know and your trust. Little as $10 for the plan. The speed and uptime's been pretty awesome. It's been so. pretty great. I, t- I tell you what, Christian. Well, let me say this. MapleGrovePartners.com. Um, the, uh, I was installing some WordPress plugins tonight, just before the show. I would yeah. log in, and I had, I had a couple lined up. Click done, click done. Literally, like click done. It was it was pretty freaking amazing. You, I don't know how you've made it that fast. Yeah, but um, hey, I was looking for uh, a BIOS update for for uh, for Burst. You know, I've been messing around, and I actually got the N40L working on Burst right now, which is pretty amazing, oh, right? Cool. So, Very cool. so really old, right? Those N40Ls are like a hundred years old at this point. Yep, and so I. I'd been online and I'd seen some things about, I'm like, I wonder if I upgraded the bio. So I go in there, you know where it took me? Bios-mods. Bios-mods.com. So and some conversation in there and 
boom, Christian right in there. I was like, yes, yeah. yes. And uh, old even stuff me, right there. It took me, one of the threads took me back to the home server show forums and John Stutzman was talking a bunch about the, uh, the BIOS mod for that, for that machine. And uh, so, you know what I did? I followed the instructions. I, fl- I, I got the BIOS uh, flashed and updated and then it now accepts the bigger drives and all of some of the other stuff that you needed to do to get it done. I think the SATA 2 drives needed that to, to get it a full uh, 3 gig or 6 gig. Mm, I think it's 3, right? 3 gig throughputs for those. And uh, I think. And so thanks, Christian. Like you, you did all that work uh, 10 years ago. <laughs> Literally. That's, you know, hopefully we uh, don't have to relearn the same lessons twice. You know? Boom. Yeah. No, right on. So I'm still, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still modifying the thing. Yeah, the BIOS. It's pretty great. It's pretty great BIOS that I can. Mods, the gift yeah. I'm giving. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. We are live out here Monday night, every other one. And we'd love to have you come out and join us. Uh, thanks for coming out. If you're listening live, appreciate that. And uh, with that, we'll say goodbye, everybody. Good night.